0: All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show.
1: People tend to make their diets their religions and their identity. And that's a big problem, because when you come along and you talk, especially in a credible way, about a diet that may be better than this diet that so-and-so has adopted as their identity, as their sort of religious fundamentalist belief, then it's like you're, you're threatening their identity. Those are the kinds of people that tend to come out after me. And it's fine. I get it. Like I understand that talking about nutrition sometimes is akin to arguing about religion. That's 100% what it is. Like most of these people, they're not going to change their minds. So it's fine. So I don't really engage and get too emotionally wrapped up in it. And also, I like to remind them that I'm, I'm pro-plant. I'm not the enemy. I'm trying to get people off of ultra-processed foods. Like, I'm, I, I'm not a carnivore dieter, right? I don't promote the carnivore diet. I promote a very balanced diet, inclusive of both animal products and plant products. So, I honestly think the reason why I seem to get so much vitriol from that community is because they're the most threatened by me because I present the most compelling and convincing argument against plant-exclusive diets.
0: Hey there, it's Light Watkins. Welcome back to the podcast. So this is a very special week on the podcast because we've got our very first return guest on the show. My brother from another mother, Mr. Max Lugavere, is back. You may remember Max's original episode, which I believe was number 16. In that episode, we covered Max's full backstory, which is basically the story of how he became a diet and nutrition expert after... Witnessing his dear mother suffer from dementia and naturally he was desperate to find solutions and he used his research skills from his days as a television host to learn as much as he could about brain health. He started sharing it with other people in case they had a parent going through the same thing and eventually Max put all of his findings about diet and brain health into a book which was called Genius Foods which went on to become a New York Times bestseller. Max was featured on the Dr. Oz show several times, as well as on other major media outlets. Then he wrote the follow-up, Genius Life, which also became a bestseller. And most recently, Max has published Genius Kitchen, which tells us the story of why we should all have a well-rounded diet and what the most important foods are to include in our daily meals for optimizing brain health and really health in general. And what I love about Genius Kitchen is how it's full of very easy to prepare, non-intimidating and tasty dishes that just about any of us could make. And for anyone who's even scratched the surface of diet research, you know that There are many misconceptions out there and lots of loosely interpreted research that many advocates of certain diets will use to vehemently defend their dietary point of view while denouncing other diets. So Max and I talked a lot about how to see through that kind of research. We talk about Max's own dietary biases and and what he feels are the top five foods we should be including in our diet. We also talked about his lab work. And he was very transparent in revealing that. We unpacked his growing social media platform. And we went through and broke down how he was able to kind of get above the noise to become one of the leading voices in wellness. And we discussed how he now thinks about engaging with trolls and passionate commenters. You know, he gets a lot of those when you talk about diet publicly. And all in all, it was a very awesome and long overdue conversation. What's even more awesome is you can now go back and you can check out our earlier talk in episode 16 to get more context into why Max approaches diet in the radical way that he does. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. I look forward to bringing more guests back to talk about their recent works as well and to dive deeper into their current body of work, which is something that I don't often get around to doing in the original conversations that are mainly focused on their backstory. So without further ado, here's Mr. Max Lugavere. Max Lugavere, welcome back to the podcast. You're actually the first guest of mine that is coming back on after your initial episode. So I'm super honored to have you back. And it's actually good because we already have your origin story well documented. I think it's in episode number 16. So so we can talk more about some of the things that you're excited about these days obviously your new book and then some of the other things that have led you to becoming the massive health and wellness presence that you've become so anyway welcome to the show
1: that's kind of hard to believe that I'm the first repeat offender on your show personal, well I'm
0: I'm kind of actually evolving the format before I wasn't into that but but now i'm getting more into solo episodes and i just kind of want to get more into talking about things that are not about childhood and like the whole you know the whole therapy session format yeah. that i've been doing which has been great but yeah i just want to diversify it a little bit
1: more i'm honored
0: yeah but you and i are also friends and so i'm i'm really impressed and inspired by your work but i also want my listeners to kind of understand your process a little bit more because as an author and as an influencer, you've kind of taken a, a blaze really at based on how you've come to be this sort of, I, I don't know. Have you ever, do you have any official degrees in like nutrition or anything like that? Or are you kind of
1: armchair? I don't. No, no, no. Yeah. I'm, uh I mean. I but started... you're one
0: of the most foremost authorities right now on nutrition. And, well, and you're not I'm afraid not... of picking a fight.
1: I'm not. No, I am. Well, you know what? I think it's, I've never been much of a credentialist and I don't have a very strong authority bias. And I feel like these are values that were instilled in me by my mother to really take the reins of a topic when it's something that you're passionate about. And I'm, I mean, I'm passionate about, I can count on one hand the number of things that I really love in this life and health science, nutrition, longevity is, is one of them. And yeah, I think it's a it's a testament to the fact that we live in this amazing time where technology has democratized knowledge for so many of us. And granted, I think I have a, an aptitude for what it is that I do, and I'm mission driven, and I'm passionate about the topic because I saw chronic disease up close and personal with my mom, and that's part of my origin story. But yeah, no, I don't. I never misrepresent myself. I, I'm not a PhD. I'm not a medical doctor. I'm here to provide information and communicate health science to the best of my ability. And I feel pretty confident that I've done a good job thus far. I think that I, you know, something that's very important to me is to be responsible with how I communicate this stuff and to be clear about any biases that I might have and to acknowledge where sort of the science ends and my own sort of opinion and perspective begins. And so I think that that's what people kind of like get and appreciate.
0: Talk a little bit about your origin story. Just give us the clip note version of how you started on all of this. Yeah, we went deep the last time. I remember you We did.
1: Yeah. We <laughs> were someone.
0: all in University of Miami. And, yeah.
1: Yeah. I started my college career as a pre-med student. I was on the pre-med track. I had always been passionate about health science for as long as I can remember. Beginning at the age of 16, I, I developed an interest in bodybuilding and fitness science and stuff like that. And that was like a very personal passion. But I would always like kind of recognize that in my social life, people would always ask me health questions. Like, you know, I wasn't, I was a student, like an undergrad, and people would nonetheless come to me for my sort of opinion and perspective on things, which which I thought was really interesting. I mean, I guess that's neither here nor there. But all that is to say is that perhaps I had a penchant for communicating. Truths, you know, an intuition uh, about, about health and fitness at that, at that point. So I started college with the intention of going to medical school, but then halfway through college, I realized that, well, two things. One, that I was creative. I love storytelling. I love creativity. I love art, cinema and music in particular. And then the other thing is that I, my academic record was really never that strong. I was, I got A's in the classes that I was passionate about, like the sciences, but then I would get D's in the classes that kids would typically take to get the easy A's in. It's just that my brain is sort of like a light switch. Like I'm either obsessively passionate or passionately obsessed about a topic or I'm not interested at all and I just can't focus on it. So that led to a fairly mediocre grade point average at University of Miami, which is where I went to school. And I ended up pivoting and doing a double major in film and psychology because I loved, again, creativity. And I I think I was seduced by a professor that I had there who was like a motion pictures professor. That led to me getting a job in journalism when I graduated from college, a dream job where I was on TV in 100 million homes and I was a presenter there. I got to cover topics that were both heavy and light, a wonderful opportunity. And six years into that job in my personal life, it was then that my mom got sick and she developed the earliest symptoms of what would ultimately be diagnosed as a a rare form of dementia called Lewy body dementia, which is akin to both having Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease at the same time. And that was like a singularity in my life, a point of no return where I became fixated, I guess, on trying to understand why this would have happened to her. I mean, I, I loved my mom. I love my mom to death. And seeing her, a woman who is so vital and vibrant and full of energy and youth, succumb to this condition that I think a lot of people consider to be an old person's condition, was something that I just wasn't willing to sit idly by and, and merely observe. And you know, I'm a, I was a layperson at the time, but I think that the way that I was raised compelled me to step in. And I started going with my mom to doctors' appointments, and I was met in every instance with what I've come to call "diagnose and adios. A doctor would run a battery of strange tests, write a new prescription for my mom, and, and ultimately send us on our way. And so I had this background as a journalist. I had the confidence to go into the medical literature and to start doing my own research and then i had these media credentials that gave me a bit of a, a bit of access i guess that that i exploited to my family's advantage where i began reaching out to experts all around the world and having conversations with them and that began about 10 years ago and i'm still learning to this day it's a it's a question that i continually ask and will probably continue to ask until my last breath cuz my mom you know her life was incredibly tragic and i wouldn't wish What had befallen her onto anybody so um, Mm -hmm. so my work is really it's motivated by her It's inspired by her and it's about communicating health signs leading people to a healthier way of life
0: Hey there really quickly Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice? But you're not quite sure where to begin Well, if inner work is like a drop of water the is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY, again, thehappinessinsiders.com Enter the promo code HAPPY, and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's the HappinessInsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. So you have brothers, you guys are all pretty close, I'm imagining. Are you the only one that really took this on as almost a career or your other brothers also doing, were they inspired in some way to step up and and learn more about health and wellness as a result of your mom?
1: They certainly helped, but they were not super helpful at first Mm -hmm. in the sort of fog of war that we were in when we were trying to figure out what the hell's going on with mom. I mean, they're younger than me, so they were more... In the, they were in the more nascent stages of their careers. So that required a lot of focus and what have you. And so they weren't very helpful back then. Nobody, nobody was really there to help my mom other than me. And so that was really the role that I took upon myself to embody. Later on in my mom's disease, my brothers definitely stepped in and, and especially during her final months, those were the most stressful months of my life. And we were all there for one another, and it was you know I'm incredibly grateful for them and and they helped in other ways like they don't you know we all have different skill sets, so my youngest brother he's more of like a financial genius, so he was like helping my mom had all these like crazy complex like financial structure that my brother like helped to rein in, and we were all helping manage like the stress of we were dealing with my mom 's partner at the time, who in retrospect he was proceeding in accordance with how he thought he should proceed, but that was very stressful for me and my brothers. And so, yeah, it was like a, it was like a really potent support network that we ha- had for one another.
0: I just actually interviewed someone else who is care- who is still caregiving for her mother who has dementia. And she said, one of the things she discovered was that dementia is the most expensive
1: illness that someone can
0: have. Was that your experience as well?
1: I mean, it was pretty expensive and I, I knock on wood. I thank God that my family, we had resources to be able to pay for, I mean, we had, my mom had multiple types of insurance, you know, so we, we had health insurance, but we also thankfully were able to afford health aids for her. So we had like round the clock care for my mom. I wasn't her sole caregiver, but yeah, it is super expensive. So that, that was costly. The medical bills are costly. It really is a nightmare. It's a caregiver's disease it's horrible. Like any, anybody with a loved one with dementia, I mean, we'll attest to, I mean, oftentimes people with, with loved ones with dementia will put their, their loved ones into care. We didn't do that. We wanted my mom to be home the entire time. And so that comes with, I mean, that's a, that comes with a cost.
0: All right. So this takes you down a track of educating yourself, starting with dementia, but then ultimately in just brain health and, and in general, talk about reading the literature. Like if someone's listening to this and maybe they're experiencing something and they want to start to do their own research and not take the doctor's word for everything. What are some of the sort of industry biases that you discovered early on when you were first starting to study the literature and maybe even cross-reference things with other sources? Were you seeing like anything related to oh this industry is funding this study and that's why the results are like or is that just out of the movies.
1: No, 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 it's it's completely <laughs> it's accurate. Well, there's a bias towards pharmaceutical intervention. Okay. Um, among, among doctors like f- the the pharmacological treatment of these conditions and with regard to dementia, I mean the treatments are minimally effective, if effective at all, and they certainly have no disease modifying ability. But nonetheless, if you present with dementia, chances are you're going to be prescribed either aricept or namenda. If you have a, a movement disorder, like a, a Parkinson's-like condition, you'll probably get a little bit of cinnamate, which is a dopamine replacement. But these are mere biochemical band-aids. Doctors generally are biased away from nutrition because they receive minimal nutrition training. And then you take somebody like a neurologist, and they rarely, if ever, will talk about nutrition. There's mm-hmm. this cold joke circulated amongst neurology residents that I, that I learned about, and it is that neurologists don't treat disease, they admire it. And that's because the tools that we have at our disposal to treat these diseases are so limited. I mean, Alzheimer's drug trials have a 99.6% fail rate. I mean, that's worse than drug discovery for cancer, for cardiovascular disease. It's just a dismal state of affairs. So there's that. And then when you look into the nutrition literature, I mean, there's often plenty of bias, whether it's the diets of the nutrition researchers or biases that are inherent to nutrition research, like the healthy user bias, which pervades nutritional epidemiology. And that is essentially the best example that I can offer is meat often is associated with worse health outcomes because people who consume meat in this country, especially, and particularly processed meat, consume more fast food, they're more sedentary, they're more likely to smoke, et cetera. And then you take, so that's healthy user bias, Right. It's not necessarily that, that, that we know with certainty that the meat is causing these worse off health outcomes. It's that there's all these other lifestyle factors that are associated with eating meat that are confounding, that, that serve as confounding variables, right? Then you take a food like quinoa, right? Now, I haven't seen this study, but I can, I can tell you with certainty that if you were to look at people in the United States who eat quinoa on a regular basis – I bet you their health is much better than average. Now, is it because of the quinoa or is it in spite of the quinoa? Well, quinoa is a highfalutin grain. If you can pronounce quinoa properly, chances are you're reading health blogs, you're shopping in more naturalistic supermarkets, etc. So that's the problem that pervades nutritional epidemiology. And now we're getting better at controlling for those variables. But once you do, you see that once diet quality is controlled, meat is perfectly healthy that's just one example of where you see bias in nutrition research so that's why i think it's it's really hard for like your average person to make sense of headlines that come out like meat promotes type 2 diabetes or meat is associated with lower risk of type 2 diabetes or one week eggs are are in and the next eggs are being demonized for example
0: when i was doing my meditation research on my second book less more what I discovered was that most of these studies, these quotes meditation studies, are conducted on people who are basically in the study treadmill, right? These are students, they get hired to participate in whatever study they, this, these institutions want to study, so they're basically being paid to come in and learn some crackerjack box meditation technique, right? Which is not how anybody organically starts meditating. Then they're being measured in a laboratory meditating, which is highly unusual and unnatural. (laughs) And then they'll do something like they'll put a plate of chocolate in front of that person who who learned how to meditate yesterday, or who, who learned how to quotes meditate yesterday, you know, probably some guided meditation and they measure how long it took them to reach for the chocolate. And if they put the same chocolate in front of someone who hasn't meditated, and they reach for it 50% faster, then the headline becomes, meditation makes you 100% more likely to resist chocolate cravings, and that's the one they run with. But when you really look at the fine print and the detail, not just the article about the study, but the study itself, these things have so many, they have more holes in Swiss cheese. And so I'm assuming that's one of the reasons why these diet wars exist between doctors. You have a lot of confrontations with doctors who have pretty much bought in on whatever their diet religion is. And, and I feel like at a certain point, you can't even go back and say, you know what, I was wrong about this or I was wrong about that. So in your experience, have you found that... What you thought was true at one point in your earlier days, you were wrong about, or you admitted that you were wrong about, or your understanding of it had changed?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. My views have evolved in a bunch of different areas. And, you know, I, I, I think, not to blow smoke up my own butt, but I do think <laughs> that, I'm, that, I'm, that I am the most balanced in the nutrition space. and mm-hmm. I, think I feel like that too. Yeah. yeah, I think that is a one of probably a handful of reasons why I've been quote unquote successful in this space because I am balanced. I mean, there's a lot of people that push these fad fringe diets, whether it's fully plant-based diets or fully animal-based diets. I think it's still important to like hedge your bets with regard to the diet that you're consuming every single day, right? I mean, you could have a plant-based day here and there. I think that's fine, but overall omnivory is the way. It's how we've gotten here. And I certainly think that it plays a role in in optimizing our health. So where have my views evolved? I mean, they've evolved in a a few places. I think that probably when I first started out, I was a lot more focused on macronutrients like carbs and fat. I was probably a, a bit more carb phobic back at the beginning of my journey. I'm still grateful that my books don't necessarily reflect that. Like Genius Foods still presents a very honest and accurate portrayal of the science but just in terms of my own diet I think I probably put more emphasis on eating a low carbohydrate diet whereas now I think my views are place greater emphasis on food quality mm-hmm. which I will say that when you are optimizing for nutrient density that you end up eating a lower carbohydrate diet than the standard American diet because the standard American diet is a grain-based diet. So, inevitably, when you start focusing more on whole foods, you are going to eat a lower carbohydrate diet. But that really is, I think, more of my focus and also more of the message that I'm trying to put out these days focus on food quality. You know, above and beyond the diet wars, we know that 60% of the calories that your average American is consuming come from ultra processed foods. These foods typify the standard American diet, they are at the foundation of the obesity epidemic. So, I think the more you can stray from that, status quo, the better off you'll be. I've become a lot more convinced that protein is an important diet tool. It's very satiating. It's important for fighting off frailty, especially as we age. So that's a big one for me. I've become more a fan of dairy, actually. I think that when I first started out, I probably... There's this sort of dogma in the wellness world that like dairy is inflammatory, that it's not good for you. Studies are really not bearing out that dairy is inherently inflammatory unless you're sensitive to it which is an individualized thing but i do think that dairy has a lot to offer so i've been integrating more dairy into my diet so yeah i'm I'm always willing to challenge my assumptions and pivot when new evidence presents itself i think that's an important part of the process
0: book, Genius Kitchen, you do a really great job of the first hundred pages are pretty much summaries of your thinking about various categories of food. So I want to just, I'm going to call out some categories and I'd love for you to just give us one misconception. You know, I was vegan for for a very long time and I'll I'll also include sort of the stereotypical thinking of what I remember from back in those days of being vegan and, and maybe playing devil's advocate a little bit, but then you can kind of give us your understanding. All right. So meat, obviously a lot of people think meat is, you know, whatever you're thinking about protein is meat is bad for the environment because they spend so much water and irrigation on meat. And if we were to all agree to stop eating meat, then we'd be able to make a positive impact in climate change.
1: So here's where I guess I have to disclose my bias. My bias is for human health. My bias is not necessarily for environmental health. It's not necessarily for animal welfare. That is not to say that I don't care about those causes. I do care about those causes. So you might say, well, Max, he's an asshole. He doesn't care about the environment. He doesn't care about <laughs> animal welfare. No, I care about those things. But my priority is human health. And I say that coming from a place of experiencing profound sickness. And that is that you know what I, what I went through with my mom. And so for me, the only thing that matters in terms of my investigation into foods and what I promote, is this food going to help improve your health? Is it going to help you feel better? Is it going to help buy you additional months, years, or decades of healthy life? That's what I'm most interested in. And if we can do good by the environment at the same time, then that's beautiful. That's amazing. And thankfully, we know that by voting with our wallet for the system that we'd like to see, we can help usher in that system. I don't believe that opting out entirely of, for example, animal agriculture is the way to change that system. Some people might think otherwise. We've had to scale up our animal agriculture and aquaculture dramatically over the last hundred years to feed a growing population. Mistakes have been made. The feedlot industry is abominable. It's, it's terrible in the way that they treat animals, in how it affects the local and global ecosystems. But I think that by using your money to vote for the system that you'd, that you'd like to see, again, you can help usher it in. And I'm convinced that animal products play a role in an optimized diet. So again, that's my, my priority. That's what I'm most interested in, in the preservation and optimization of human health.
0: What about the argument about saturated fats? from consuming meat and the plaque buildup in your arteries and things like that. And again, I'm not a scientist. I don't, I'm just, just, you know, kind of hearsay in the, in the vegetarian community.
1: Yeah. So a saturated fat is not a saturated fat. A carb is not a carb. Protein is not necessarily protein. Certain saturated fatty acids actually have a neutral effect on lipids like your LDL cholesterol. Others do have a more significant effect in terms of their ability to raise LDL cholesterol. Now, if you are pounding butter, coconut oil, and products like that, and you're causing an undue elevation of your LDL cholesterol, I think that we should maybe take a step back. And also, the likelihood of those fats to do that is going to ultimately depend on your genes, your overall dietary, the context in which they're being consumed. But it's safe to say that butter, coconut oil will raise your LDL. And those fats are not very nutrient-dense foods, So if you're concerned about heart disease, if you're prone to hypercholesterolemia, I would say minimize those foods. In fact, I recently saw a 22% drop in my LDL levels by relegating butter from a daily, something that we consume daily, to an occasional indulgence, along with a few other things that that we could talk about. When it comes to foods like red meat, I think that the benefits outweigh the risks in terms of the nutrition that you're getting from those foods, right? Right. I don't think you could say the same thing for butter. I don't think that you can say the same thing for coconut oil. But red meat is a pristine source of protein. It's a highly bioavailable source of zinc, a vitamin B12, a vitamin E, creatine, which we know supports brain energy metabolism. And a cow that's been grass finished is going to have higher levels of stearic acid, which is one of these saturated fatty acids that actually has a neutral effect on your lipids and possibly even a beneficial effect on your overall health. You're going to see higher levels of that. You're going to see lower levels of of fat, total fat, and saturated fat overall. So with every food, there are going to be benefits and risks. And everybody's going to have a different sort of response to those foods, right? Like I might digest raw vegetables really well, and they might upset your stomach. So everybody's different. But again, with regard to red meat, I think that the benefits outweigh the risks. And whatever saturated fat you're getting when you consume red meat, I think – That's fine. Every natural source of fat is going to contain some proportion of saturated fat. So to be afraid of this single nutrient doesn't make any sense, certainly not from an evolutionary standpoint and particularly in the context of whole food.
0: So when it comes to genetic differences, are those differences based on region? So for instance, people from sub-Saharan Africa have this certain genetic disposition versus people from Scandinavia region of the world, or is it more localized than that? Where you can have people from the same region, five people from the same region, and two of them are lactose intolerant, and the other three
1: are, you know, have celiac intolerance. Yeah. I mean, it, it varies region to region, gender to gender. I'm certainly not an expert in nutrigenomics. I mean, we're just at the very tip of the iceberg in, in understanding the ways that our genes interact with our food environment, but. Probably the one gene that I am most well versed in is the ApoE4 allele, and I carry one copy of that. About one in four people carry a variant of that allele, and that makes me prone to hypercholesterolemia. So I'm prone probably to having higher levels of LDL. It makes me more likely, in the context of the standard American diet, to develop cardiovascular disease, Alzheimer's disease. But again, I'm of the stance that. Maybe a food like butter, which we know can drive up LDL levels, and I'd also like to make the distinction between butter and other forms of dairy fat, which is sort of down another rabbit hole, but butter in particular can raise LDL, and it's not the most nutrient dense food. It's just like a fat, and it's also a man-made food, right? Like cream mm-hmm. is, is made by nature. Milk is made by by nature. Butter is something that humans have made, Right. So I think it's important to understand that distinction, but something like red meat or even fatty fish, which again, all natural fat containing foods are going to contain some proportion of saturated fat. They all contain saturated fats. The benefits for my genotype of eating those foods, I think outweigh any risks with red meat. I try to eat grass fed, grass finished. I will bias more towards leaner cuts of meat, although I still enjoy the occasional ribeye. So yeah, it does vary person to person with genes playing a role. So fish. Fish are full of microplastics. The
0: smaller fish are eaten by the larger fish. Tuna is like one of the worst things you can have even wild caught. Salmon, same thing. What's What's your thinking on that?
1: I still think that the benefits outweigh the risks of eating fish. And we can see that observationally. We see that people who eat more fish, they have better cognitive function. They seem to be protected against Alzheimer's disease, even among people who are genetically at risk, like me, for developing Alzheimer's disease, that fish consumption plays a role in helping stave off that condition. We see that people who consume fish during pregnancy, their offspring have greater cognitive abilities, better, stronger mental development at certain age endpoints. So yes, our oceans are increasingly polluted and it's a big problem. We need to tend to that problem. But it's also true that the benefits of eating fish still outweigh any risks. I mean, fatty fish is a rich source of highly bioavailable omega-3 fatty acids, DHA fat and EPA fat to be specific, and also a great protein source. And I mean, you can eat fish like sardines, which are highly sustainable. They're plentiful. They're a staple in the Mediterranean diet. And yeah, really feel, feel good about it. Feel safe. Feel like you're not costing the environment anything. Also supermarkets, major supermarkets are becoming increasingly responsible with how they source fish. I had a Great. You'd be a good guest for your podcast as well. His name is Barton Seaver. He's a sustainable seafood expert. Eighty percent of the fish that we consume in the US these days are coming from sustainable fishery, according to him. So it's a good question, but again, benefits outweigh the risks. So when you see labels in the grocery store, even in places like Whole Foods, and it
0: says sustainably caught, I heard there was some controversy around that because people are mislabeling things or making you think it's one thing, but it's something else.
1: Yeah. As far as I know, supermarkets are really leading the charge and then we have regions like Alaska and Norway really getting better with regard to the farming practices of these fish and then with wild caught fish i think you know there's always the risk that you're going to i forget the term but it's like you cross catch or you you catch a species that you're not intending on catching but they're getting better about eliminating that potential and also when you opt for these like smaller fish like sardines. Salmon is another good example. They tend to be doing it in more sustainable ways. I'm not a sustainable seafood expert by any stretch, but based on what I've learned from experts like that Barton Seaver guy, I feel pretty confident that consuming it is of no particular risk to the environment. It's also good to have a varied diet. I mean, it's another reason why I'm not a pescatarian, right? I think it's like You want to have a diverse stock portfolio. You want to be diverse in terms of your dietary pattern. So I eat fish, I eat grass-fed beef, I eat poultry, I eat pork, I eat lots of vegetables. I try to eat the rainbow with regard to the produce that I consume. And so all of that has the effect of making sure that I'm not leaning too heavily on seafood or land agriculture, etc. I think that we can all do that, but people have different dietary preferences, and so that's not always feasible. Were you into cooking before you got into all of this health and wellness stuff? Did you cook a lot? I can't say that I was always a good cook, but I've always been into preparing my own food because it allows you to control what it is that you're ingesting. I like to know what it is that I'm putting in my body, not in like an orthorexic way, but there's this argument in the woke fitness community that a healthy relationship (laughs) with food is you're just willing to eat pretty much anything and just go with your body intuitively and that you don't you're, you're, you're not overly mindful of what it is that you're putting in your mouth. I'm like, okay, don't be overly mindful, but can we at least be like a little bit mindful? Again, your average person today is consuming 60% of their calories from these ultra processed foods, which reduces your average person to like a Labrador, right? Like you put a, pl- a bowl of food in front of like a Labrador. They don't even take a beat. They just lunge towards the food, right? That's how I think most people respond to food. I've always been different with that. I've always appreciated knowing what it is that I'm putting in my body. Is there going to be cheese on this dish? Is this going to be a gluten-containing dish? I think too often people just kind of like order and eat and buy food mindlessly. That's never been my style.
0: Even Einstein was said to be absent-minded. He would lock his keys out all the time and (laughs) forget where he put his luggage and all of that. What's the difference in being absent-minded and having early
1: stage (laughs) some sort of brain degenerative disorder? How would you know? That's a good question. Well, one thing they say is if you forget where your keys are, that's normal. If you forget what your keys are for, you know, that's the point where you should maybe go make an appointment with the, with the neurologist. I think we tend to know. Usually, it's the people around us that perceive it first.
0: So, being um, absent-minded is not a bad thing then in, in no, terms no. of brain health. No no that's no, no, kind no. of normal. Even you're yeah. absent-minded sometimes.
1: Sometimes yeah, people have personality quirks, people get overly focused, you know, people have different capacities in terms of their like focus and attention. Like I my 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 younger brother, brilliant, you know, he's like a he's a computer programmer, but he's very absent-minded. When he's like involved in his programming world, his house could be burning down, like he could have left the stove on, the, you know, the cat could be in the oven. It's like he's just he's solely focused on his work. So people people are different. You know, we all have different personalities. So it's important to accept those and embrace those differences in our personalities. But usually if there's a change, that's when you want to like Einstein was probably always like that. My brother has always been like that. My brain has always worked the way that it's worked. If there's a change, that's when you want to go see the neurologist. And it's not always indicative of, of a form of dementia. Sometimes there are medical reasons that somebody might experience a change to their cognitive function. You could be dehydrated. You could have, you know, maybe a sluggish thyroid. Maybe you're depressed. Depression can sometimes mimic signs of dementia. It's called a pseudo-dementia. So not all changes in terms of one's cognition are related to dementia, but always helpful, you know, if you think that there's been a change to go and get checked out by your PCP.
0: So if you go to a PCP or neurologist and they give you dietary recommendations should you take that with a grain of salt and cross-reference it with something else or I mean how how thorough are these dietary recommendations based on your understanding of brain health
1: again most medical doctors are not adequately trained when it comes to nutrition and that's fine they have enough on their plate so I'm not admonishing doctors for their lack of nutrition expertise there are some great dietitians out there but Still, I think that, that, that the current nutrition guidelines and the way that nutrition is practiced in this, in this country leave a lot to be desired. I think health literacy and nutrition literacy is something that we've outsourced, right? Like we aspire to see nutritionists or dietitians. And it's something that I think we all should know a little bit more about. And that's one of the reasons why I do what I do because I think that health literacy is something that we should all have, like spiritual literacy, right? Like financial literacy. We live in the era of specialization and that's come at a cost we are no longer self-sufficient. And I think that's a big problem.
0: Let's say somebody hears this and they turn into a big Max Lugavere fan. They go and they tell their vegan friends or whoever, hey, I'm doing what Max Lugavere says to do. What do your haters and your detractors say about you? And what's your rebuttal?
1: (laughs) I feel like my only haters are... If I have haters, I mean, usually they're of the plant-based community. There are some people that I really admire in the plant-based community. But I think the problem is, and you, you kind of alluded to this, is that people tend to make their diets their religions and their identity. And that's a big problem because when you come along and you talk, especially in a, in a credible way about a diet that may be better than this diet that so-and-so has adopted as their identity, as their sort of religious fundamentalist belief, then it's like you're, you're threatening their identity. Those are the kinds of people that tend to come out after me. And it's fine. I get it. Like I, I understand that talking about nutrition sometimes is akin to arguing about religion. That's 100% what it is. Like Most of these people, they're not going to change their minds. So it's fine. I try not to engage and, and get too emotionally wrapped up in it. And also, I like to remind them that I'm, I'm pro-plant. Like, I'm not the enemy. I'm trying to get people off of ultra-processed foods. Like, I'm not a carnivore dieter, right? I don't promote the carnivore diet. I promote a very balanced diet, inclusive of both animal products and plant products. So, I honestly think the reason why I seem to get so much vitriol from that community is because they're the most threatened by me because I, I present the most compelling and convincing argument against plant-exclusive diets.
0: You know Troy Casey, right? I don't know if I know that person. The certified health nut. You probably have come across some of this stuff on social media, but he has, he's got this book called Ripped at 50, and he's super into you know everything wellness. And he says, look, if you're talking about health and wellness, first of all, take your shirt off. Let's see what, <laughs> what we're actually talking about, okay? Because you can't be seriously talking about this stuff if you're not actually embodying it. And I and you posted something the other day, which actually was one of the inspirations for me inviting you back on the podcast. You posted your lab work, yeah, on your Instagram, and that's really what we're talking about. It doesn't matter what you believe. Let's see what your labs actually say based on what you've been eating. And it it inspired me to go back because I got I got some lab work done with Dr. Paradis a couple of years ago, and it made me go back and because I didn't really look at it that closely. I just. And everything was kind of in the good to moderate range. I was average in omega-3 fatty acids. So I said, okay, I got to eat more salmon and olives and walnuts and stuff like that. But is that something that you would recommend that everybody do? And, and if so, what do they need to ask for to see what's actually happening inside of their body?
1: Yeah. Well, I was having this conversation with Drew Pruitt. You yeah, know Drew of the Drew Pruitt podcast. And he suggested Mm -hmm. that if you are in the position where you're actively influencing other people's nutrition decisions, then you should make your labs public, transparent transparent, public. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's not why I made my labs public, but I made them public more because I wanted to share an experiment that I did with my audience. And I saw a 22% drop in my LDL cholesterol. I wasn't even intending necessarily on, on dropping it that markedly but no i agree i think the problem is like there are a lot of ripped people in the fitness space who are not healthy right like so that's the Mm -hmm. one sort of positive the risk of the false positive right Right. a lot of people with great bodies that they're on either injectables or peptides whatever and don't actually you know you can't necessarily use how somebody looks as their credential but i do think that if there's discordance if you don't look good Or if your labs are super crazy, then like what's going on? Are you not practicing what you preach? Are you not walking the walk? I talk the talk and I walk the walk, and and it was important to me to present those to people. Also because the revealing of my labs shows, illustrates an area where my views have changed. And so that was part of it, like showing people where that I'm always willing to like iterate and evolve. So Basically, like a year ago, I had labs. My triglycerides were slightly, everything was still in the range of healthy, but my LDL was 131 milligrams per deciliter. And I just did three things that caused a 22% drop. So now my LDL is about 100. And the three things that I did was I relegated butter to an occasional indulgence. How much were you eating before? Probably on a daily basis, I was just indulging in it. I was like using it for on like, I get sometimes like paleo breads and I was like using butter as a spread. I was like blending into my coffee, which I think is really, really delicious. But I was like doing that fairly regularly. And I switched to cream, to heavy cream, which has the same fat content, but the fat chemical profile is a little bit different. So cream is is not likely to increase your LDL, but butter is. Mm-hmm. And so I started using less butter. I also started running my coffee through a paper filter, whereas before I was French pressing it, which changes the way the diterpenes in coffee affect our lipids. So, I started filtering my coffee and then I started eating a couple of Brazil nuts every day, which support thyroid function. Having Mm. good thyroid function is important for your LDL cholesterol. So, I saw this like drop and I just wanted to share that with my audience. So, yeah, I mean, I I do think that's important. Oh, and also I'll add just because You've asked such fun questions so far. I've seen some labs of people in the plant-based community that are completely unremarkable and mine are better. <laughs> so especially, especially <laughs> recently. So all that is to say, you can still completely consume meat and you can, you can have labs that look great. But I think in general, triglycerides, HDL, LDL, your fasting blood sugar, your fasting insulin, these are all markers that I think people should have a general sense of and get looked at once a year hormones, testosterone for men. Also really important. I shared my testosterone levels. A lot of people thought that I was on like TRT. That was impressive. A thousand Uh, something or another. Yeah. It was like 1100. That was my total testosterone. I have to get my free testosterone checked out. But yeah, my testosterone pretty high. How old are you? I'm about to be 40. Okay. Yeah, Yeah. That's pretty
0: good for a 39 year old. If someone wants to get their lab work done, what do they
1: ask for? A blood test, urine test, fecal test? or? Yeah, I'm not a big fecal test advocate because I think there's still <laughs> a lot of unknowns with regard to the microbiome. Generally, you want to go to your doctor, have them run a comprehensive metabolic panel. I like to do an NMR lipid panel, which looks at all the different... LDL subtypes and pattern A, pattern B, you get to see whether or not your LDL particles are large and fluffy and buoyant versus small and dense. Although there's new thinking that, you know, it's APOB in general, which is the most predictive of cardiovascular risk. So you want to get, I think, a good sense of your like your lipids, your triglycerides. In general, you want your triglycerides low, you want your HDL to be high, you want your mm. LDL to be, you know, I mean, there's disagreement about this, it's controversial, but mine is about 100, which I'm totally, totally happy with. If you're fasting blood sugar, you're fasting insulin, you want those to be nice and healthy and low. Your hemoglobin A1c, which is a measure of the average exposure to glucose that one of your red blood cells has had over three months, that's a good test to get. And then, yeah, like thyroid panel, important, you know, because even mild hypothyroidism can lead to an increase in LDL and also... Slower metabolism, et cetera. So, those are all just sort of like the the basics. I don't think you need that much. You know, a lot of these like functional medicine practitioners, they run all kinds of labs and tests. And I think like it can, it can be interesting, especially if you're a data junkie like me, but you can get by with those, just those basic, those more basic labs to a pretty significant degree.
0: Let's talk about sugar. Yeah. You go hard on sugar and you've done some really wonderful graphics showing how much sugar is in vitamin water. And just all these different, very common things that we consume in the standard American diet. Talk about sugar. And if we do have a bit of a sweet tooth, what should we be thinking about our sugar consumption?
1: The problem with sugar really is that it's empty calories and that it's insidious in the modern food supply. So your average Mm -hmm. American today consumes 77 grams of added sugar, added sugar every day. So this isn't sugar from fruit if you want to picture that as teaspoons, it's about 20 teaspoons. Oh, shit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a day? A, a day. Oh. 77 grams of added sugar a day. And they've shown – so what's interesting is that 77 – about 75 grams of, of glucose is what they'll use with these oral glucose tolerance tests, which is like the sort of gold standard measure of how insulin sensitive or resistant you are, which would indicate one's predisposition to, for example, type 2 diabetes. But they've shown that 75 grams of sugar generally, when given to subjects as a bolus, leads to a sharp reduction in testosterone and also a sharp increase in systolic blood pressure that's sustained for about two hours after ingestion. So, I mean, my testosterone is pretty high, right? I eat a low-sugar diet. So, maybe that's one reason why I have better-than-average levels of testosterone. Also, my blood pressure is great. Having healthy blood pressure is very important to preserving brain health. So, sugar. Yeah. Sugar is is definitely you want to minimize your consumption of added sugar. It's everywhere. That's like one of the major problems with it. It's in our sauces. It's in commercial breads. It's in, I mean, coffee drinks, sugar-sweetened beverages. Sugar-sweetened beverages are a major problem. There was a research calculation that estimated that about 184,000 lives are lost annually to sugar-sweetened beverages alone. So... Getting rid of the added sugar, I think, super important. I wouldn't worry about whole fruit, provided that you're not like over consuming it, especially tropical fruits like bananas, pineapples. I mean, these can, can these can have a high calorie load. But yeah, minimizing minimizing your exposure to added sugar, I think, is smart. It mm-hmm. is very smart. It also leaves you less prone to hunger throughout the day. And again, we no longer live in a time of food scarcity, right? We have incredibly food security. Now we can argue about the quality of food. Certainly some people still live in food deserts, but we do live in, it's the first time in human history where there are more overweight people walking the earth than underweight. So for the most part, I mean, we've solved this problem, at least here in the West, this problem of food scarcity. And so very few of us are lacking in access to calories, right? And that's one of the reasons why so many of us overconsume them. To the degree that now by the year 2030, one in two people are going to be not just overweight but obese. So, Mm -hmm. that's where I think limiting your exposure to added sugar is really important. It's going to help keep your hunger in check. It's going to help normalize and optimize your hormones, your blood pressure and also your waistline because calories matter.
0: I want to shift the conversation just a little bit and talk about you as an author, you as an influencer, because I've noticed that over the last handful of years, your social media presence has kind of exploded, and you've been very consistent in creating these infographs showing us the misconceptions of various foods and things like that. Where did you get that idea, and do you credit that with being the reason behind you becoming this huge influencer or what would you uh, credit that to?
1: Well, my Instagram game changed a couple of years ago when I decided to start adding value on that medium. And I mm-hmm. I looked to see like what was going to add value to that medium in a way that was sort of endogenous to the medium that was native to the medium. So visual, right? Because Instagram is a visual visual medium. So I started with those like infographics and those did pretty well. They started tra- attracting people to my account. These days, though, I tend to just cross-post a lot of what I tweet out to Instagram. And I also have been focusing more on, on video content, reels, and so forth. But yeah, the I mean,
0: infographics, I, you used to spend a good amount of
1: time on each one,
0: right? Like yeah, You'd yeah, be in yeah.
1: Photoshop and yeah. writing these long-ass captions <laughs> with footnotes. Yeah, I mean, look, it helped get me to where I am today certainly because I think the Instagram algorithm used to be more fertile to that kind of content making it to the explore page. Today, I feel like what ends up making it to the explore page are all the sort of the more anomalous content, like content that's like more extreme and more mm-hmm. controversial and eye-catching. But for a time, it was just like if people engaged on your content, it tended to sort of get picked up. And my content was generally very neutral. There was very little controversy. I mean, I guess I've always been a little bit controversial with regard to like my endorsement of animal products. But yeah, you know, you have to play the game to some degree if you want to make an impact. And I I learned that you've got to be a good storyteller. You've got to be a good marketer. You've got to be a con you've got to like use all of the tools at your disposal to make an impact. And that's ultimately what I want to do. I want to like reach people, new people. I don't want to just reach people that are following the paleo Low carb, high fat hashtags. You know, I want to like reach out and affect people who are the most nutritionally ignorant. And I'm still, you know, every day I still spend a significant portion of my energy to try to figure out how to reach those new, untouched people.
0: Are you doing your own social media
1: or do you have help? No, I still do. I still do like my own social media. I do like my own Instagram. I uh, do Twitter. I can't not. I have fun doing it. I mean, sometimes I get too wrapped up into it and that's where I think meditation would help me like to separate <laughs> myself from the more annoying comments that I sometimes get. Cause I, I, sometimes I can't help myself, but like go in on the comments when something you're
0: all it. in the comments, man, <laughs> yeah.
1: I, I have taken on a zero
0: comment policy or, or you know, for people who are being disagreeable, but you're all in and you're defending your stance. And have you, have you learned anything or has that kind of evolved
1: over the years? I've started like, because again some people they'll challenge you but they don't actually want to change their minds
0: no so never, it's probably 99% of the time they don't change their minds
1: right right 100% so i mean so if people are just trolling me i've gotten a lot more comfortable with blocking people i used to have more mm. pride about blocking people i used to feel like blocking people was weak you know mm-hmm. if I'm like this if i'm a strong person that i should i should be able to like take the, the heat, right? But some people are just annoying. Some people are literally <laughs> just, just there to trigger you. I'm willing to have a debate, to have a conversation, but I will happily block people who annoy me. So I've gotten a lot more like amenable to hitting the block button. But I would say that for the most part, people are great on social media. Like people generally have embraced my ideas, my content, and I'm not a- averse to occasionally being challenged. I'm, I'm certainly not. Like I, I appreciate it. As long Mm -hmm. as the person on the other side is willing to have a good faith discussion. Because I feel Mm -hmm. like the majority of the time, they're not actually willing to change their mind. You know, there are some prominent people in the plant-based space who I feel like will sometimes antagonize. And even though I think that they're probably well-intentioned people, I know that I'm not going to convince them to, to become omnivores, right? So, I've stopped engaging at this point with those people. It's just a complete waste of time and energy.
0: So you're in your third book in this genius brand and the other two have been
1: bestsellers. Are they both New York Times bestsellers? No, just Genius Foods. The, the second book okay. came out March 2020, so the timing was terrible. It, right. it still became a national bestseller, so it's still, but I, I don't attach myself to those labels.
0: Why do you suppose your books have done so well, though, with all of the other diet books? the market and books about food and and that kind of thing. What do you think your secret sauce is?
1: I think it's that I'm the goat. No, (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I think that like we live in a time where people are becoming a lot more privy to, you know, sort of the churn of like diet books and diet trends. And I think that what I bring to the space is a a much more authentic voice. It's Mm -hmm. not a perfect voice. I don't like You know, I'm not I'm not perfect, but I think people know that my intentions are good, that I've dedicated my life to this cause. And that I'm not really just out trying to make a quick buck that like I'm I'm happy to be able to do what I do to make a living, but that my heart is in it and that my intentions are really to help my readers achieve a greater vision of life of what's possible with regard to their health.
0: The other thing about writing these kinds of books is... Because I write like these kind of self-help books, you know, I don't have any footnotes, but you have to be, it's, your, your field is like a landmine. Like if you, if you cite one wrong thing, yeah. people will use that to discredit the entire thing. So you have to be really diligent and tenacious when it comes to the preparation the research and presenting the information in a way that is not contradicting, I guess, whatever the latest science is saying about. Because the science yeah. also changes on, the, on a moment-to-moment basis as well. Yeah, it does.
1: There's certainly room for, for mistakes to be made. I mean, nobody's perfect, right? Show me one single diet book that hasn't construed the science in some way to push an agenda, right? Some of the top health and wellness books, you know, the, mo- the most famous household name like health and wellness books – are guilty of this. So, it's common, but I think that like again, it's like people generally know my intentions. They know that I'm not some kind of like activist first, health author second. Like I'm I'm really interested in investigating this idea of what the optimal biologically appropriate human diet is. And so I do the best that I can. And like science is fallible, I'm fallible. I express to people I'm not an expert in all areas. Like I I have sort of my lane and that's where my, like we were talking about sustainable seafood earlier, right? I was very clear that, that I don't know everything about like seafood, aquaculture, but there are some areas where I feel like my research and investigation has really gone quite deep. And so that's what I tend to write about. Like those, those areas. I also don't talk about something unless I know about it. That's another thing. Mm -hmm. Is there anything about writing a cookbook that
0: surprised you or that's like different from writing just a regular book that people who've even written books before wouldn't, wouldn't
1: know? It's super fun. It's a lot less emotionally taxing to write a cookbook. Mm. Writing my other books was emotionally very draining, especially my second book. My second book, I wrote the bulk of it during the final months of my mom's life. And trying to like focus on a book at that point during that time was really hard to do. But a cookbook, it's a lot more creative. You work with a photographer. The book is a lot more visual. Because it's a cookbook, you don't feel the necessity to like go into the weeds so much with regard to the science. I mean, I do have, as you mentioned, the first 100 pages are sort of a kitchen and wellness guide, breaking apart like all the different food categories. And I still have a scientific reference section in the back. But no, it's a lot more fun. It's a lot more creative. Promoting it so far has been very fun, you know, doing a lot of like reels and creating recipes on tv shows and things like that that's been that's all been really great and also it's like it's very fulfilling knowing that people are going to be picking up the book making delicious dishes for themselves and their families because that's really where the rubber hits the road with with regard to nutrition you know we don't mm-hmm. consume single isolated nutrients we consume food we've co-evolved with our food and so helping people realize that health food doesn't have to taste like health food that it can be shockingly delicious that's, mm-hmm. Sort of my mission with with the new book.
0: You're single, right? Yeah. And uh, <laughs> how does this always come up? <laughs> <laughs> and you obviously have dated and, and met people and stuff like that. What's your if for people who are kind of like they have their health routines and their protocols, how do you approach introducing your potential partners to the way you eat or the way you tape your mouth at night? Or do you kind of do the thin edge of the wedge or do you just kind of hit them with it all right
1: off the bat, slow chewing? You know, they don't don't use mouthwash and all that stuff? So for me, I guess the challenge is I like to have a I don't really like to drink very much, like alcohol, but I don't like to like reveal that to a girl that I'm dating right away because I think that especially in LA, that could send the message that you're like boring or something. Mm-hmm. So that's something that I kind of like withhold for like. A that's few your days. dirty little secret: is that you <laughs> don't drink. <laughs> yeah. I drink a I drink a little bit. It's just that I don't drink. I don't you know. On the first date, I'll have like a glass of wine or something. Right. I'm not. I'm not like slamming tequila. Like I can't afford the hangovers at this point. And also alcohol doesn't always serve me, you know, like sometimes I think it plays an additive effect. Like I I love on occasion enjoying a glass of wine or what have you, but I really don't feel like I need it anymore at this point. It's not even on my radar really. And I know it's not good for you. It's a carcinogen. It's like a neurotoxin, Mm -hmm. but I still will enjoy a good glass of wine on occasion. And so like, I'll usually like on dates, like I'll have a glass or two, but then usually it'll come out. I'll, I'll have to share at some point that like. I don't really like to drink like multiple. I have something to tell you. <laughs> I don't really <laughs> drink. <laughs> oh, God. It's kind of funny, actually. I've never like said that out loud, but um, I feel like everything else is pretty reasonable, though. I'm not like, you know, I'm not like Ben Greenfield. I'm not not like over the top biohacker. Or like <laughs> I feel like my life is pretty reasonable. I have like certain dietary preferences, but even in restaurants, I'm able to kind of work around them fairly easily without being too obsessed. My sleep routine is pretty intense, I guess you could say. And so that's like another area where like it takes, I guess, a little bit of getting used to, especially when I'm sharing the bed. I like to sleep with a pillow on top of my head for one. So mm. that's like not the most social way to sleep, I guess you could say. <laughs> but other than that, I think I'm pretty, pretty reasonable. Like. Could you date someone who's plant-based? I don't think so. I don't think so. I wouldn't enjoy it as much because I like f- I like food too much and I like sharing food and, and culinary experiences and I like cooking. So I don't think that I would long-term be able to date somebody who's plant-based. No.
0: And then the word on the street is you've been in therapy for the last year. Yeah. How's that? I mean, How's that?
1: It's been good. <clears throat> it's been really good. I've had to come to terms with a relationship that went South, which we've talked about many times, light. but, mm-hmm. you know, trying to get over this person, has been a bit of a challenge for me, and it was for her too. You know, she had to move to the other side of the country to break the cycle. I've done that before. I've moved to the other side of the country before to
0: get yeah. out of the, get out of my space. That yeah. space. Yeah.
1: And I wish her nothing but the best. But it's you know, it's taken it's it's a journey, and I'm still. I don't think I'm at the other end just yet. But no, therapy has been really helpful. It's been really helpful. I'm I'm glad that I've embarked on that. On that journey, I have, I have a great therapist. She's very articulate and insightful, and and yeah, I think normalize therapy. It's a great thing.
0: And you circle back around the meditation. I heard as well.
1: She's trying to get me to meditate more, which I was doing for a while. I mm-hmm. had a, a run where I did it like almost every day for a month, and then I just fell off the wagon and I haven't really been that consistent with it lately but it's been very helpful it's been good to bring me back to the present because sometimes you know like especially with this with my ex-girlfriend I'll think about like the future or the past or and meditation is a really great way to I mean you're the meditation expert but you know the reason why she has endorsed it so strongly for me is that it helps bring you back to like the moment like stop having anxiety about the future Stop being depressed about the past. Come back to the moment because the moment's pretty good.
0: Let's wrap up with this question here, man. Five lifestyle changes that someone can do based off of your work, someone can do starting today, effectively, that will dramatically or just maybe even gradually improve their life, that they kind of stick to it. And I'm asking about things that people can stick to relatively easy compared to completely changing their entire life. Like, going, you know, people probably aren't going to go from being plant-based to eating meat today, but what's something they can do or anyone can do lifestyle-wise? It doesn't have to be diet either. It could be like sunlight or mouth taping or something like that.
1: Cool. Yeah, well, for one, the first thing that came to mind was just slow down while you're eating. Mm -hmm. I think this is a really important one. And something that became increasingly clear to me was something that was beneficial as I was writing Genius Kitchen. I mean, digestion begins in your mouth. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the most valuable compounds in foods sometimes take a little bit of time to be developed, I guess you could say. For example, when we chew vegetables like arugula or beets that contain nitrates those nitrates we don't humans don't have the enzymes to break to reduce nitrates to nitrites which then enter the nitric oxide pathway so a lot of people know that beets have nitrates they can boost blood flow reduce blood pressure this is all true but that conversion we don't create those enzymes endogenously it's the oral bacteria in our mouths Mm. that are responsible for that conversion so you need to give the the microbes in your mouth, time to reduce the nitrate. And so slow down when you're chewing, especially veggies like beets, like arugula, many other reasons to slow down while eating, but um, that's just one of them. So take the time, recognize that digestion begins in the mouth. This is not a metaphor. This is like reality. Another thing that I would say, number two would be to move more. So I don't know what kind of exercise regimen you're on, but just movement in general is, is medicinal for the brain. When you're sedentary for an extended period of time, blood literally drains from your brain. And mm. it's a little bit of movement that helps to reperfuse the brain. Your body acts like a pump. There was a mm. study that a couple of years ago that found that just being um, submerged underwater with your head out, the pressure on your body caused an increase in blood flow to the brain. So, moving your body, very important. With
0: Even body. walking. Walking is
1: good for... Even walking. Yeah. I mean, walking is great. I mean, we say even walking, like it's like this, like minimally viable effort, but it really is like, I mean, we're engineered to walk humans. Mm -hmm. So, walk Mm -hmm. more. I would say three, you really have to focus on your sleep and make sure that you're dialing in your sleep. Sleep quality and sleep duration are both important. One of the most effective things that you can do is try to get to bed roughly around the same time every night. One of the most important ways to encourage good quality sleep of sufficient duration is to exercise during the day. But not just any exercise, new research is showing that it's resistance training in particular that can help boost sleep quality, more so than aerobic exercise. It helps build what's called sleep pressure, which is a phenomena that basically encourages you to to pass out once your head hits the pillow. If you don't build up enough sleep pressure over the course of the day, or if you diffuse that sleep pressure with naps, you're just not going to sleep as well that night. So making sure that you are building adequate sleep pressure and you're being fairly consistent with your, with your sleep schedule Four, I would say sweat regularly. I am not a big sweater when I exercise, but I love saunas Mm -hmm. and a big, big part of my health routine is is sweating regularly in a sauna. We know that certain xenobiotic compounds are excreted in our sweat when we sweat. So, making sure that you're doing that on a regular basis and also hydrating well afterwards. That's really important. Make sure that you're getting in your electrolytes, crucially important. And then, I guess, lastly, exposure to sun. Sunlight, you kind of alluded to, really important for anchoring our body's circadian rhythms. But also, it's not just that. It's not just the vitamin D that we create. The sun on your skin creates... All these other beneficial compounds, like I mentioned nitric oxide, I had an expert on my podcast, uh, a physician board certified in sleep medicine who was sharing how exposure to the infrared rays from the sun during sort of like the dusk and dawn times of day when you get that like nice red light and, and infrared light causes your cells throughout your body to create melatonin, which is actually a very important and powerful antioxidant in your periphery we often think of melatonin as being this like sleep hormone (coughs) right created in our pineal gland but Mm -hmm. we have melatonin expressed peripherally and it turns out that exposure to the infrared rays from the sun actually spur this this melatonin generating process which helps to keep us young and is a is a chemoprotectant it helps fight cancer aging so that's where I think the utility of like these red light devices may come into play. I don't have any affiliation with any of these like these companies that make these like red light devices, but I think they can potentially play a health supportive role.
0: I have a quick side question about that, because I have anecdotally deduced that if you wear sunglasses, you end up sending the wrong message to your body. You tell your body that it's darker than it actually is, and your body absorbs more of that UV than it ordinarily would. I could be completely wrong about that, but I've never worn sunglasses. And also, I'm a little suspect about sunblock. What, what are your thoughts on, on those two things?
1: Well, I mean, sunblock, I think, is useful in, in terms of preventing burning, Right. So mm-hmm. if you're gonna be on an island somewhere and you know that you're at high risk for burning, then sunblock the benefits outweigh the risks of wearing it, right? Synthetic sunblocks have endocrine disrupting potential. So I you know, I try to not use avobenzone, oxybenzone based sunscreens, and I, I try to opt more for like a zinc or titanium based sunscreen, which actually form a physical barrier between the sun and your skin. But those are the only use cases where I think like using sunblock Makes sense. If you're just talking about like a 10 or 15 minute exposure midday, also it's like the time of day matters as well, right? You're more prone to burning between the hours of, I, b- I believe it's like 10 and 12 or 10 and 2 than you are on either side of that window. So yeah, I think it's important to actually get sun on your skin. Super important. Also, the darker your complexion, the more prone you are going to be to vitamin D deficiency. So people have different tolerances for the sun. People who are older might need to spend more time in the sun. People who are more overweight need to spend more time in the sun. Somebody with Nordic genes, right? Like very, very pale skin. They could be in and out of the sun in five minutes and likely generate a lot more vitamin D than somebody who's more tan, for example.
0: And sunglasses, you're a fan of those?
1: I mean, short wavelength blue light does generate free radicals in the eye. So I don't think you want... The same way that this, that chronic exposure of the sun on the skin can lead to photo aging, mm-hmm. you can have the same effect in your eyes. So if you're working outside all day, once or twice, no big deal. But if it's a if it's a chronic thing, I think you know you want to make sure that you're getting in your ambient sun exposure in through your eyes in the first portion of the day, so the morning. But I think that there's probably no harm and in, in, in probably a little bit of benefit to wearing sunglasses, like especially if you're out for you know, an extended period of time in the latter, in the latter end of the day. After mm. about 2 p.m., I would take off my sunglasses you know, to make sure that the red, the red and infrared rays from the sun are getting into your eyes. But like midday, I don't think that there's anything wrong with wearing sunglasses to prevent like, UVB exposure to your eyes.
0: And that's usually the answer to a lot of these questions. It's it's no, it's not either or, it's both, yeah. and it's gray areas and all of that. So thank you for elaborating on that. And genius kitchen is currently out, and that's that's exciting. <laughs> so make sure you guys pick up a copy of Genius Kitchen. And is it is it meant to be standalone compared to the other two foods, Genius Foods and Genius Life, or should they get all three or
1: is it, it is like Star
0: Wars where, where you have to read it's a the first
1: trilogy. one to understand? Yeah. No, no, no. It's it is standalone. All the, all the books are standalone. But yeah, Genius Kitchen sort of has like the, the most practical of my recommendations and my most up-to-date of the recommendations distilled into like nice little sections broken down by food category. But I would say the ultimate duo would be Genius Kitchen and Genius Foods because Genius Kitchen is sort of like the official recipe cookbook to Genius Foods. Which is the more nutrition based, more nutrition focused of my two prior books? So Genius Kitchen, Genius Foods. If you had to buy one, buy Genius Kitchen. If you had to buy, if you were going to buy two, Genius Foods and Genius Kitchen.
0: You, you did do an audio book for Genius Kitchen, obviously, right? You no, kinda I did. It. Oh, really?
1: Yeah. Okay. The reason why we did an audio book is because I wrote so much for in the, the first the cool part of the book. Yeah. Yeah. Cool.
0: Awesome, man. And you also have an amazing podcast, which I've been on a couple of times, if not two or three times, Genius Life. And those are posted on YouTube as well as everywhere you can listen to podcasts. And so we'll put all that in the show notes. So thank you very much, my friend,
1: for uh, coming back on. And hopefully this won't be the last time. (laughs) No, this was super fun. And whenever you're back in LA, we'll have to get you back on on my show as well.
0: Yeah,
1: 100%. All right, brother. You, man. Thank you.
0: Thank you for tuning into my second interview with Max Lugavere. His latest book in the Genius series, which is called Genius Kitchen, is now available everywhere books are sold. And make sure to follow Max on social media at Max Lugavere. That's M-A-X-L-U-G-A-V-E-R-E. And of course, we'll put everything in the show notes, link-wise and otherwise. You can find those at lightwatkins.com. While you're there, you can also search my past episodes by subject matter. So if you want to see more episodes about people who've taken leaps of faith or people who've overcome financial struggles or people who've navigated health challenges, you can get a list of all of those episodes about those particular topics also at lightwatkins.com. And by the way, did you know that you can watch these episodes on YouTube? I know for me, sometimes it's nice to put a face to a voice or to a story, so just keep that in mind in case you're the same. I post every podcast episode on my YouTube channel, which you can find by just searching Light Watkins Podcast, and also I post the raw, unedited version of every podcast episode in my Happiness Insiders online community. So if you're the type that likes hearing about all the mistakes and the false starts and the chit-chat in the beginning and the end of every episode... You can listen to all of that by joining my online community at thehappinessinsiders.com. And not only will you have access to the unedited versions of the podcasts, but you'll also have access to my 108-day meditation challenge. And there's also a 108-day movement challenge and other challenges. And if you're feeling inspired by these stories, To help make sure this podcast continues to stick around for a while, the best way to support that mission is to leave a rating or review for the podcast, which you can do really quickly. It's only going to take you about 10 seconds to glance down at your screen right now and go to the name of the podcast in the Apple podcast app. Click on the name. Scroll down past the seven or eight past episodes until you see five blank stars And all you're going to do is just tap the star all the way on the right, and you've left a five-star rating. Thank you so much in advance for that. Otherwise, I look forward to hopefully seeing you back here next week with another story about someone just like me and you who's taking a leap of faith in the direction of their purpose. And until then, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart, and keep taking those leaps of faith. And if no one's told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. Thank you, and have a great day. you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again. Just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.